From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Janet, I have a question for you. Do you prefer learning about a wide range of topics or going deep into one thing? Hmm. Well, I'm a Gemini and therefore deeply superficial and flit around from one thing to another. I was a journalist, ditto. But yeah, I love going deep into things because you really start to learn. And, And obviously we do that a lot at MGI and actually this podcast as well. That's a good point. And we are really lucky we get to do this. But spanning breadth and depth is one of the things that today's guest has been able to do. David Otter is a labor economist, and our conversation spans from inflation to global trade, from automation to how to create better working conditions. But what's unique about David is that before he found his calling as a labor economist, he actually worked in many different jobs in a whole bunch of fields, everything from education to computer programming to food service. He even talked about dropping out of college and being fired from a semiconductor manufacturing job. Yeah, and that firing was because he was wearing nail varnish, I seem to recall. I mean, real life experience makes a great economist. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Over to you, Michael. David Otter is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. David Otter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure to be here. So I usually ask guests about their background, where you grew up, how you ended up becoming a well-known labor economist, uh, all those sorts of things. And I'm particularly interested in hearing about your journey to where you are now, particularly because I understand you have a bunch of jobs that aren't on your academic CV. So um, why don't you go ahead? Sure. Yeah, no, I I, I sort of fell backwards into economics. Uh, if I knew where I was going, that was not the route I would have taken necessarily. But yeah, I was... Um, I was actually a psychology major in college, and I dabbled in computer science, although I don't have a, any credential in that. But I had I, I, the reason I did that, I actually dropped out of college partway through. I started at Columbia, and I dropped out. I spent a couple of years working as a software developer for a hospital while I was trying to sort of grow up. <laughs> I matured, went to Tufts, and then I was going to do clinical psych. And I even published research as an undergraduate in clinical psych. But by the time I was finished with the degree, I, I the undergraduate degree, I, I thought the questions were great, but I was really not satisfied with the answers. And I did I felt like it was too particular, individualistic, didn't answer a bigger question of solving kind of larger problems. And also the you know, I love computer science and I felt like I was doing crisp, you know, kind of puzzle solving there, but I didn't feel like it led me to the questions I wanted to answer. So I liked the methods, but I didn't love the end goals at the time. And with psychology, I liked the questions, but I didn't like the methods. I just, I kind of gave up on all that. I I drove out to California with my girlfriend, and along the way, I heard about this computer learning center opening at a black Methodist church in San Francisco called Computers and You. And it was kind of, this was back, this was right around 1989. It was kind of sponsored by Silicon Valley. It was in the Tenderloin, which is a pretty rough and tumble district in San Francisco even now. And they're trying to kind of help people without access to the technology to develop the skills and the learning opportunities. And I thought that sounded really fascinating because it kind of married the things I was interested in, which were social service and and technology. So I showed up there and I volunteered. And then after a little while, I became the kind of the education director there. So I worked there for several years. And it was an amazing experience, both the teaching, dealing with a really uh, complex, diverse clientele, the fundraising, the outreach, and the tech toys themselves. We got we were like the basically the kind of repository of everyone's broken computer in the San, in the Bay Area at the time. And it was actually we spent a lot of time fixing them. So after several years, I actually, actually did something related. I and then I volunteered in South Africa 
working with the non-racial trade union, doing also computer skills education. But after a few years of this, I kind of realized, I, like, I liked what I was doing a great deal, but I, I felt like I wanted to kind of go to a different level of working on the same topic. Like, I wanted to go meta. I wasn't interested as much in the direct service as in understanding, like, what was the thing we were doing even a useful thing to do? <laughs> so I applied to the Kennedy School to do a master's in public policy, and I didn't know what I was going to do with that, but I knew I would look credible. And so I started that, and then partway in, I said, oh, I'm going to do a PhD in public policy. What do I got to do to get into the PhD program? Well, I had to take the advanced economics and statistics classes. And so I started taking the advanced welfare economics class, and I just felt like, wow, nobody ever told me about this. This is the thing that does sort of social science questions using the tools that, you know, I think are so powerful. And so I, I was really a kind of, I'd never, I'd never, I knew nothing about economics. That was about the study of money. And so that was, uh, so while there, I just backfilled as much economics education as I could get while I was doing this PhD in public policy. And then when I finished in 1999, I was very surprised and terrified to find myself actually in the economics job market, which is not somewhere I thought I was qualified to be. <laughs> I was hired as a junior faculty member by MIT, where I still am a faculty member today. It was, um, yeah, I feel like a guy who was sort of playing for the farm league and somehow got drafted into the majors. It was quite a surprise. I still feel undertrained, but it's been an extraordinary experience, and I've learned an enormous amount and gotten to work on questions that seem you know, very important to me and in many ways tie back to the work that I did, working on technology and inequality, skills and opportunity, and the fact, is, the fact that changing labor markets and generally over the last four decades have made labor markets worse for people without college educations uh, in the United States, which is really the group I worked with most directly. Yeah, let me just ask you, what, what did you learn from all of those experiences? And I think you left out the the pizza job and some other things too. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of temp work. I worked at a, a pizza place for six months. Can I, I'm sure there's more. I, you know, I, I feel I consider myself to have, you know, failed careers in many, in many fields, computer science, education, food service, and light industrial work as well. I actually got fired from a, from a semiconductor manufacturer because I was wearing nail polish on my fingers uh, while I was um, assembling chips, and they thought that was just too weird. <laughs> anyway, what did I learn? I guess, I, you know, I don't know if I could boil it down into a simple lesson. I, I learned that the lack that, that poor education stands in the way of everything else, and it's actually quite hard to remediate that among adults. And I discovered this both in San Francisco and even more so in South Africa, that even people who were latently very bright uh, and very, you know, well-spoken and admirable in many ways, they, if they had been undereducated as kids, it was hard for them to do the type of analytical reasoning and communication that was needed for a lot of work they did. So I didn't feel that simple skills training was going to solve many of the more profound problems that I saw the barriers that I saw for adults in particular. I also came away with, maybe this is rather kind of prosaic, but I came away thinking that the although the people I was working with were marginalized and poor and discriminated against, their values were incredibly middle class. <laughs> they, 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 they were not radicalized or radical. They wanted what many people would want, which is a decent job, a stable life, and most importantly, the opportunity to give those things to their children. So, you know, I did not come away radicalized in terms of thinking the system needs to be overturned. I felt the system needs to be fixed 
in a way that could create oppor- more opportunity. It's not that what it was striving for was not was somehow not valuable. It's that it wasn't creating a level playing field or a good set of opportunities for people to strive for those shared uh, goals. Well, let's dive into it. Uh, everything from your understanding of human psychology through some of the things that you learned work, working with people, and now now your current research. Correct me if I'm wrong, but at least one large thread of your research is about the impact of various shocks or changes on labor markets. And so maybe we could talk about some of those. We are still, quite frankly, you know, experiencing a major shock in the global economy, which is the, the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd love to get your informed perspective on what's going on uh, from a labor market standpoint. You know, what's changed, how things might evolve going forward. Sure. I mean, the pandemic is created all kinds of economic paradoxes. Many, many things have worked out very differently from what people anticipated. So, for example, you know, we thought people were going to be wiped out. We had the lowest rate of poverty in the United States ever seen. We thought we would come out of the pandemic, I I thought, with very slack labor market. More people looking for work than jobs looking for workers. In fact, we're in the opposite situation. We thought the pandemic would destroy, you know, businesses – we are in a period of rapid business formation. We thought the pandemic would sap productivity. In many ways, it's kind of opened up new vistas of productivity. We thought that being the country that was most, took the leading role in developing vaccines, we would also be the most vaccinated country. <laughs> that also turns out not to be true. Uh, so all kinds of paradoxes, and and some of them positive, some of them negative. But the labor market side, I think, is one I'm watching, of course, very closely, so we knew in this in the task force, so I co-directed the MIT task force in the work of the future. And one of the things we said very loudly in our final report and a book as of today, there's going to be labor scarcity that due to aging population, low birth rates, dramatic draconian restrictions on immigration, increasing education levels that have made people less and less interested in doing a lot of the you know, in-person or, you know, manual labor that needs to be done, that we were going to be in a period of long-term labor scarcity and that we would need a lot of technology, robotics and so on, to help make that labor productive enough to cover all the costs, including the healthcare uh, retirement costs, and allow us to invest. But that's been known for a long time. We didn't anticipate coming out of the pandemic that we would hit that inflection point immediately. Now, there's some good things and some bad things. So first, we could talk about why that's happening. I mean, nobody really knows, right? I mean, I I think, you know, we all, I mean, we know, right, one thing is we created a lot of demand, right? We distributed huge amounts of uh, cash to households and businesses. Savings rates are up just uh, at spectacular levels and people are spending it down. So we would have created a lot of demand or would have been a boom. The surprise was the reduction in supply of workers, you know, we are down, our labor force participation rate is about is down more than a million workers, close, closer to two, maybe more than that, depending on what you want to count. And that's a substantial hit. And we don't fully know why that is the case. So the bad thing about the labor shortage, of course, is it's one of the factors leading to inflation. And inflation is not our friend. So a lot of people are seeing nominal wage gains without seeing real wage gains. Fortunately, at the bottom of the labor market, that's not true. The nominal wage gains are larger than the inflation rate. They're, you know, in hospitality, wages are increasing about 12% a year. Inflation is running about 6%. So that's a good thing. 
for workers? For workers. <laughs> well, I view it as a good thing because, you know, workers are most people and it's a course correction that was needed even though I, I realize, of course, businesses aren't thrilled about this, but we have been in a four-decade period of eroding job quality for people without college degrees. Uh, the fraction of, of work, of jobs available for them that are in high-paying production jobs or in good office clerical jobs has fallen dramatically. So most people who don't have a college education now are working in basically services, you know, food service, cleaning, entertainment, recreation, security, Transportation, construction, some of those, there's a range of things in there, but many of those are low-paid work with almost no collective bargaining and minimum wage levels that are, in real terms, the same as they were in 1950. Every advanced country has faced many of the same headwinds as the United States in terms of changes in technology that have hollowed out the middle, globalization that has put pressure on manufacturing, rising education levels, which have been, you know, in many ways a good thing growing, declining population growth, uh, aging populations, and yet there's a whole spectrum of outcomes that they have produced. And the U.S. is kind of at the left-hand tail of badness of those outcomes in terms of the, the, the degree to which the quality of work has eroded, the degree to which the median wage has diverged completely from productivity growth, the job security that people can or cannot expect to get, the living standards associated with, you know, the same type of fast food service work, so in my opinion, a really serious course correction is needed. I do not think this is going to undo four decades of erosion, having a tight labor market now. I think it's only a foundation on which to build. Uh, what will be built on it? Well, a couple things. One, there's more collective bargaining going on. I have mixed feelings about the way I think union relations in the United States are extremely adversarial. I don't think we have a very productive labor relations system, even when it's uh, working in strength. But in the absence of anything else, I think it's better than nothing. Um, so that that's going on. And then I think to some degree, hopefully, I don't really know for sure, there's been consciousness raising about how bad working conditions were for many of the low-paid people in our economy doing care work, doing service work, doing cleaning, working in factories if, it, if it's something like meatpacking. So that's a change. But I don't know. We'll see. I did want to ask because, you know, our audience is global and you mentioned the United States labor relations not necessarily being um, tops in the world. Where where are things done differently and how is it different? So the, the countries that I know best are the industrialized countries, so in Europe and Asia. So if we just compare ourselves to Western Europe, every one of the traditional Western European countries has a, a substantial number of a substantial fraction of all workers represented by collective bargaining, it works very differently in different settings. So the Scandinavian countries, for example, would probably be the best examples, where essentially they kind of think of it as a tripartite system involving, you know, the state, business, and labor. And there's a lot of negotiation, but it's not plant by plant, job by job, fighting about union card checks and do we get 51% or 49%. It's, it lives at the level of an industry or an occupation. And so, and in many ways, that's advantageous, right? So, for example, if I, you know, if I'm, you know, Target and my competitor is Walmart and I get unionized and Walmart doesn't, I consider that very disadvantageous, right? It's like raising minimum wages one restaurant at a time. It's not a good policy. Well, it doesn't work that way. In Scandinavia, you're going to have collective bargaining that would affect all the workers in that occupation, or industry simultaneously. And so 
although firms still don't, obviously, uh, in general, are not excited to pay higher wages, at least if their competitors are facing the same conditions, that makes it a lot more manageable. So bargaining is uh, occurs at a larger level. It's generally less adversarial for that reason. The stakes, in some sense, are lower. So yeah, I don't want to say that there aren't there isn't lots of labor strife. You see a lot in France. You see it in Italy, but it especially works well in Northern Europe. So the problem and the problem with the U.S. system by comparison is there's there's no obvious way to get from here to there. Right? It's not our system is you know goes back to the 1930s. And it's based on the notion that employers and workers are in some sense adversaries. So, for example, you can't actually have a worker representative on the board of a U.S. firm unless that's a unionized firm, uh, because those would be considered suspicious. You know, one of the ones that uh, a piece uh, that or a set of research that you're most well known for in the past decade, about a half decade ago, is is the impact of trade globalization on the U.S. Uh, labor market. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what that what that showed. Sure. So, you know, I, so the work that I've done with my colleagues, David Dorn and Gordon Hansen, as well as Jerome Asimoglu, Brendan Price, and others, you know, looked specifically at China's rise as a way of seeing large-scale changes in the world trading system and, and trying to understand their implications for different countries engaged. So, you know, just to step back, right, China's rise is, is an amazing, spectacular event from the perspective of the West, really over the last three decades, but really it starts at least four decades ago. And, you know, China's growth has, you know, reduced world poverty enormously. It's created prosperity, not only in China, but throughout Central and South America, great commodity booms brought enormous amounts of investment into sub-Saharan Africa that's largely been neglected. So on any world historical scale, this is one of the best events for sort of global welfare in probably forever. So from the perspective of the U.S. in particular, um, China's rise was highly disruptive, especially after it joined the World Trade Organization and you know, received permanent most favored nation trading status in 2000, joined the World Trading Organization in 2001. And that led to a remarkable surge of exports. Uh, at one point, the U.S. trade deficit with China was about 2% of GDP. And while that was going on, it was very – created a lot of displacement of U.S. manufacturing employment, much more than was anticipated by the parties that negotiated that. You know, we're talking job loss in the order of 1 to 2 million jobs, depending on how you count it and where you look. Now, it's easy to say, well, look, there's a labor market of 145, 150 million people, like one or two million jobs, you know, let's not be too sentimental here. How big a deal is that? And that would be true if those jobs were evenly distributed across the United States. You know, we have 3,500 counties, right? you know, be less than 1,000 workers per county, et cetera. However, that's not the way manufacturing works. Manufacturing is very geographically concentrated. Where it occurs, a lot of it tends to occur, and not just manufacturing overall, but manufacturing in specific activities in assembly, in textiles, in furniture, right, in plastic products and so on. So when you talk about the loss of a couple million jobs, you're talking about large chunks of the economic base of certain communities, local labor markets being wiped out very quickly, losing, you know, not just a little bit of work, but basically the, the industries there becoming non-competitive. And it created a lot of misery, a lot of resentment. And in addition, the places that were directly affected did not bounce back. 
uh, with any of the kind of speed <laughs> or elasticity that economists tend to predict. I mean, there's been this longstanding myth that the U.S. labor market has, you know, a great employment security program. It's called get a new job. If you lose one job, you just get another. Factors reallocate so frictionlessly that we won't even notice, right? But it certainly is not true, has not been true in the last several decades. And so the places that were heavily afflicted by the China trade shock in terms of loss of manufacturing employment in particular, didn't just see reallocation of workers to non-manufacturing. We saw declines in employment rates, uh, rise in unemployment, and over longer term, declines in employment to population, falls in household income, uh, increases in idleness among young adults, lower fertility, lower marriage rates, more kids living in poverty, even an increase in what Anne Case and Angus Deaton have called a death of despair. So a lot of signs of social malaise, which would be consistent with these jobs in these industries providing a kind of anchor, an economic anchor on which a lot of the rest of the activity was kind of tethered. So that's, you know, that's kind of been the thrust of our work on that topic. And again, it's really not about China. It's about adjustment. So what could or should have been done or should be done if, in fact, this is a pattern we're seeing where trade shocks, while overall benefiting everybody, have these geographically localized uh, negative impacts? Yeah. So a few things. One, of course, is we could have uh, much more generous and kind of forceful assistance to people who are displaced. So we have a, a minimal policy called trade adjustment assistance. It doesn't reach many people. It's not very easy to access. It isn't actually geared towards reemployment as much as retraining. There's evidence that it, it can work, but it's it's a small program that most people don't avail themselves of. So, you know, this is just one, but, you know, for example, in, you know, let me take another contrasting case from Northern Europe, Denmark, like the U.S. has very fluid labor markets. People expect to be terminated frequently. Uh, lifetime employment is not an expectation. doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but, you know, uh, they're pretty unsentimental about this. But then they spend a considerable amount of public money on labor market reactivation programs. They spend, I want to say, 0.4% of GDP on labor market programs. And so they, the model is called, quote, flex security. What they mean is there's flexibility with security. The jobs are not secure. The jobs are flexible, but the workers are secure. The U.S. Has, uh, does not have anything on that scale. So that's one thing. I don't think that's sufficient, but it's a starting point. A second is we're not very good, and I don't think anyone's especially good, at kind of helping communities recover. Helping community recover from job loss is different from helping a person recover from job loss because you know, if one person loses a job, you can help them search for another job right nearby. If lots and lots of people lose jobs, that's going to have a multiplier effect, a negative multiplier effect. A third thing, and, you know, if we were doing it all over again with the China trade integration, at least if I were doing it all over again, I didn't have a hand in the first time, I would do it more gradually. I think it matters how fast things change, not just that they change. You know, like for, you know, give you an example, right? We know 20 years from now, most trucking will be autonomously driven, right? That's our strong expectation. It won't be, it won't use the couple of million people now were involved in, in uh, vehicle transportation in a driving capacity. 20 years is a long time. That's a transition we can work with, right? Because people won't go into that occupation. Other people will retire from it, right? That's a very, you know, manageable rate of change. Most technological change also 
occurs on a slow pace, in fact. It's, you know, the technology may be revolutionary, but it's very narrow. Let me pull on a thread that you had just mentioned, which is also the impact of automation. And so, you know, your co-authors, you've, you've, you've published with Darano Asmaglu, whom we've had on this, on this podcast, uh, Pascal Restrepa, on the impact of automation. You have documented the impact of these trade shocks. You know, Daron and Pascal have, have talked about the impact of automation accounting for a large percentage of the changes in the wage structure in the United States. Are those two in opposition? So, I mean, I started working on the technology question a lot, bef- many years before the trade question, right? And the work that I did, particularly with Frank Levy and Richard Murnane on the skill content of technological change sort of set up a framework for thinking about this problem in terms of what tasks did machines have comparative advantage in, what tasks did people have comparative advantage in, where was the complementarity and where was the substitution? And uh, that work sort of, you know, kind of strongly suggested that where we would see the most automation would be in what we would call routine cognitive and manual tasks, tasks that followed a well-understood set of rules and procedures that could be replicated by a machine. And that's definitely what we've seen in the kind of hollowing out of the middle middle of the labor market. The recent work by Asimoglu and Restrepo, which I like very much, kind of really formalized a lot of that and shows how to test it by looking at kind of the activities that groups were doing initially and seeing how those have been displaced both by audit, by automation, they look at robotics, but generally they're looking at what we call falls in the labor share, displacement of labor by capital. These things are not at odds. They're both going on simultaneously. And when you say the percentage of this, it it really depends on the time frame you're looking at. So if you said over the last four decades, what has been the most consequential factor impinging on the earnings power of people without college degrees, I would say automation. If you say what's the factor that caused the most damage to U.S. manufacturing workers since 2000, I would say it was the China trade shock. So these things are occurring simultaneously. They're not even actually very geographically correlated, in fact. So now, but I, I think it's it's also important, even when you say X percent is explained by automation, that's a kind of a, I think it's a useful thing to say, but it needs to be contextualized because in another country, the same automation wouldn't have caused that, right? So, you know, in the U.S. context, with the, you know, kind of lack of collective bargaining and very limited efforts to kind of hold up the floor, automation, I think, unfolded with very few checks and balances, so to speak. Many other, as I, as I stressed just a little while ago, if we look at Germany or Scandinavia or France or, you know, Austria or whatever, or, you know, Korea or Japan, right, these countries have all, they're all using the same technology, right? Everybody's got an iPhone. Everybody has, you know, the same access to cloud computing. Everybody has access to the same robotics. The U.S. is not very far along in robotics compared to many of the countries we that I just mentioned. Um, but it hasn't produced the same set of outcomes. It hasn't produced the same stagnation of median wages. It hasn't produced the same falls in real wages at the bottom. It creates pressures, right? It can create a headwind or a tailwind. How those play out is a function of the market forces, the institutional structures, the political economy, right, and even the norms. So that's why, you know, when I even, so I think it's, one needs to contextualize because if you simply say, oh, it's automation, then people say, oh, automation, well, can't do anything about automation, that's progress, right? And and I'm not saying we shouldn't, we should do something about automation, but we should not think that it's exogenous immutable force 
that necessarily produces a given set of outcomes. You know, one, do we have all these institutional strictures that change, that shape the distributional consequences? Sort of like, it's a lot like trade, right? Trade raises GDP. Does it make everybody better off? Definitely not unless we do something about it, right? Automation and trade are very similar in this sense, right? So there's going to be more winners and more losers. So you can think of all these countries that we're talking about as kind of on a spectrum of market economies. They're all market economies with some state involvement. You could think of, if you arrange them from kind of, you know, most market to least market, we are the kind of the cowboy capitalism extreme, right? You know, Scandinavia would be at the cuddly capitalism extreme and anywhere in between. So it's useful to, to make these comparisons to see that even with the same underlying forces, we produce such different sets of results because of the other institutions that we put in place. Does the cowboy capitalism give us higher growth? Not as far as we can tell. <laughs> the U.S. has not grown faster on average than other Western economies, and it doesn't really have much higher productivity once you adjust for working hours, right? We work more. I think the U.S. has some unique virtues that I would hate to see sacrificed. You know, it's incredibly innovative. We are, you know, we are out in front of the information revolution, of AI, right, of biopharma, of, you know, all revolutions in transportation. So the U.S. Is, has, a, has an entrepreneurial culture. It has a venture capital culture. It has a risk-taking culture. It also has an ability to attract talented people from around the world and invest in them. So those are, those are, you know, fabulous things about the U.S. I don't know if they're part and parcel of cowboy capitalism per se. I don't know that you need the rough edges at the bottom to attract that at the top. I mean, China is also an incredibly entrepreneurial economy, right? Not cowboy capitalism, something else again, uh, right? And arguably the two most innovative economies in the world right now are the U.S. and China, and neither one is a close representative of the other. Now, let me pull out another thread. You mentioned before real wage growth, and obviously inflation's in the air in terms of just you know what's happening right now. You know, but some of the MGI research on social contract, others have noted recently, and you know have been reminded recently that you know we often think about increasing the incomes of folks who are in the lower and quintiles, but their costs actually have been increasing, particularly costs that are required, <laughs> things like housing. Things like healthcare and education in places where you know people need to pay for them out of their household incomes. I'd love to just get your reflections on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the three things that are sort of unavoidable and highly costly and increasing in price uh, are housing, right, education, healthcare, and all of them have gotten a great deal more expensive, but especially housing in urban areas and. There's been a longstanding view that, you know, cities are the player, the escalator of opportunity. That's where you go to kind of rise. And I think there's uh, less and less evidence supporting that. If it was true in the past, and I think it was, I don't think it's true now. The work that I did for the uh, Eli lecture, which I gave to the American Economic Association in 2019, sort of showed how much wages have eroded for non-college workers in urban areas since 1990. And the jobs that would have provided that ladder were many of those middle-skill jobs in production or in offices. Those have kind of been automated away. And so, yeah, I actually think that this is not a good time for people without very high levels of education to be living in expensive cities. Uh, I don't think they offer that bargain. Great. Well, if you don't mind, I'd love to do a quick lightning round of quick questions, quick answers. You should feel free to pass if, you, if you'd like. All right. 
Here we go. What is your favorite source of information about labor markets? Hmm. I mean, so if I want statistics, I go to the Federal Reserve FRED portal, which is an amazing resource anyone can use. Paul Krugman is a master of using these in his columns. But for a lot of labor stuff, I just read stories about what people are, you know, I find the examples are often indicative of some deeper phenomenon that's underway. What's the most surprising thing you've learned during the pandemic? You know, I guess, I mean, I think the pandemic illustrates this really amazing phenomenon of how quickly a norm can change. So this meeting that we're having on, you know, a platform, right, we wouldn't, three years ago, it wouldn't have occurred to us to do this, even though this technology was available. And I was not making a good faith effort. But now we've agreed that this is an acceptable alternative. So the, t- the revolution is not a technological one, right? It's a change in norm. The miracle is that not that you could use Zoom or that I could use Zoom, but that we all agreed that we will use it and that that will be a suitable substitute for many of the other things we've done. So I think that actually opens a lot of vistas for rising productivity and also a change in the geographic mix of where work is done. Now, it creates challenges as well, but I do think it's, it's an awesome example of how fast things can change. What gives you the most hope about the future of labor markets and the future of work? Well, I guess I'm, you know, I'm always impressed by the paradox of how much employment there is given how much automation there is. And, you know, we obviously have been aware for 200 years that we've had lots of automation. Many of the technology we made to displace labor have displaced labor, right? Whether they're in agriculture, whether they're in assembly lines, whether they're in cognitive work. And so we tell ourselves the story, well, that will, you know, there's, you can tell why that would create work because, you know, people have rising consumption, they're wealthier, so they'll buy more. In some ways, machines complement us, new work will be created. But you, you could believe that and, and, sorry, you could say that and not believe it until you saw it. And so it is amazing, even coming out of the pandemic, when we think there's been automation uh, that has been accelerated by this process of having to reorient the way we work and find ourselves in a labor shortage. You might have answered this already, but what does worry you most about the future of labor markets and the future of work? Well, I worry a lot about the quality of work and the, whether people will be able to get do jobs that they're, where their skills are sufficiently scarce that they can actually lead a, you know, have a reasonable quality of life, uh, a modicum of economic security, and the ability to create opportunity for their families. We have all the t- tools we need to be prosperous and to actually use the improving productivity and the growing capability of all the technologies we're creating to raise standards of living for many, many people while cleaning up our environmental situation such that we're not going to be, you know, cooking ourselves. It's all doable. If it were just an economic problem, an optimization problem, it would be relatively easy. The problem is that it's a political problem, and that's much, much harder. And so I worry very much that the politics that are rising, not just in the United States, but really around the world, but especially in Western Europe, are very destructive. What would you be doing if you weren't an economist? <laughs> probably, you know, I think I, I, I would give you different answers at different points. At this point, I would probably be sailing around the world. I would be, uh, I actually, I love to do stuff with my hands. I like to build stuff. I, there's a part of me that I always want to be a, just like a mechanic fixing stuff. But at this point, I would probably go for a big adventure that was relatively dangerous <laughs> and, uh, and highly unpredictable. 
If you had one piece of advice for listeners of this podcast, what would it be? You know, since the people who are listening to this podcast are, many of them are in decision-making positions, I would say the one piece of advice I would give, really not for them, but kind of for others, would be to work to create opportunity in employment. And particularly, we have a labor force that, you know, considerably less than half the population has a college degree. If we're talking about Blacks and Hispanic workers, less than a quarter of them have a college degree. And yet many of the best jobs require a college degree upfront, no negotiation, can't be considered otherwise. And I would like to see more businesses reevaluate that uh, structure and ask themselves if there aren't more jobs that could be open to people without four-year college credentials to do good work and move up the ladder. And so if you're a person who's making such decisions, I would say evaluating ways to improve opportunity through hiring. That's probably the most effective way is through good employment. That's my advice. I'd like to see them act on that. If a high schooler asked you what to study, what would you recommend? You know, at this point, at that age, I actually don't think it matters as much as that you want to learn something, right? That you study something that is interesting to you. You know, I heard someone, some guy speaking, he's a trivia wizard in like sports statistics. And the people said, oh, you have an incredible memory. He says, no, no, it's just that it interests me and I pay attention. You remember the things you pay attention to and interest you. You're just not interested in that. David Otter, thank you for coming and sharing with us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for inviting me. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. <laughs>